be seated. <clears throat> well, brethren, if you've already heard, I encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. My text this evening begins in verse 25, and I want to read through the end of the chapter, verse 33, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 33. Hear now again, brethren, the word of the Lord, and we will go to him in prayer once more. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. He might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you particular, in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him together in prayer. <coughs> Our Father, we... We would look to you in this time of this particular text, Father, as we have um, several husbands in here this evening, and perhaps future husbands. Uh, We pray, God, that you will give of your spirit to give us not only understanding, uh, Father, illumination of the text itself to, to each one of your servants, but, God, that you would give that grace that is needed to put it into practice, that you might glorify, be glorified in our being your servants, and our being husbands, loving our wives as you have loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brethren, I know it's been a while since we've been in the book of Ephesians, so you may not have remembered where we left off. And uh, if you do remember, you would know that the last time we finished up in chapter 5 to the end of verse 21. And so you may wonder, why did I skip some of these verses? You see in verse 22 to 24, Paul spoke uh, and speaks there on the the wives. Well, my reasoning, and I texted Pastor Timothy earlier in the week, told him I was going to do this, but last Lord's Day evening, uh, Pastor Timothy, speaking from Exodus 1, spent some considerable amount of time addressing the wives in our church and uh, some of their duties and roles, and I just didn't have the heart, ladies, to do that to you two weeks in a row. So for that reason, I jumped ahead tonight so that we could look at the roles and duties of husbands. But ladies, God willing, we will return back to verses 22 to 24 next Lord's Day. And I did not plan it, but I was just telling Pastor Timothy a few minutes ago, I didn't realize it, but now I did earlier, that that's going to be Mother's Day, as they call it here in in the States. So the Lord's putting all this together, God willing. Well, with that explanation out of the way, I want us to remind ourselves now as we begin to 
look at what is leading up to the text, what is the context of what's been going on. And as I've done this, uh, as we continue to go through, uh, I always try to remind ourselves, and I don't apologize for keep doing this, but chapters 1 to 3, Paul had unfolded for us the glorious and marvelous salvation that our Trinitarian God has wrought for us, his people. There was nothing, nothing in those three chapters about what we did to contribute to that salvation. It was all of God's marvelous and free grace. The Father chose us in eternity past to be saved. The Son in the fullness of time came and died for his people on the cross, suffered and died and rose again. And then in time, the Holy Spirit applied the work of regeneration to our hearts through the preached gospel. Everything has been paid for. Everything that remains by way of promises are secure. All of them are in him, yes and amen. All that is left, brethren, is for us to take a brief journey through this fallen world to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ. After that, what awaits us is the consummation of all things as Christ unites himself with his bride in the new heavens and in the new earth. Those three chapters were supposed to enthrall us. They were supposed to fill our hearts with such joy and adoration towards God and his beloved son that when Paul brings us to chapter 4 and begins to unfold all of those imperatives, we're supposed to be just standing there with our hearts just bursting forth, ready to obey whatever he says. We're to be as the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus after his conversion. Lord, what will you have me to do? Whatever, Lord. After what you've done for me, giving me new life, saving me, forgiving all my sins when you didn't have to. And so beginning in chapter 4, the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, begins to tell us all that he wants us to do as his blood-bought children. And we could summarize it in this way. We've done this as well in the past. And mostly involves our walking. Notice as we go back to chapter 4, as Paul had just finished those three chapters of doctrine on our salvation, and then he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's not a lot to ask after just hearing what God has done for us in those first three chapters. Well, look at chapter 4 and verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Look at chapter 5 and verse 2. We'll read verse 1 as well. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And here's our word again. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And one more, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Now, brethren, I went back over all of this so that you would know when we come to the roles and the duties of husbands and wives, we're not simply submitting ourselves to obey these things out of some slavish duty to a God who's done nothing for us. This is the point. Indeed, he's done everything for us. He even supplies the grace we need to obey all of these commands, which we're going to talk a lot about tonight. 
And let's face it, without the grace of God, indeed, it is impossible to fulfill these duties of husband and you ladies as wives. But ladies, consider what God has called you to do. He's commanded you to submit to your husband. We'll get into that next Lord's Day, God willing. And with the avalanche of feminism and anti-submission culture, which we all live in, that has flooded society, the, the pressure to kick against what God has commanded to do is absolutely enormous. I can only imagine the, the pride that would well up in the heart of some unregenerate feminist who would be told, you must submit to your husband. They would either laugh right in your face or go tell you to jump off a cliff. And unfortunately, there are some in churches who claim the name of Christ, who feel they would like to say the same thing. But ladies, you have not so learned Christ that way. However, even for you godly Christian wives in here, it is not easy, is it, to obey Christ by submitting to your husband? You need God's grace for that. But you think you have it hard. (laughs) Have you stopped to consider, sisters, (laughs) that what Christ has commanded the husband to do might be twice as hard as what he's asked you to do? And I never thought about it too much. I read two commentaries this week, and they both made this point. I said, well, I guess I never thought about that. As Christians, of course, we're all called to submit to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to submit ourselves to him and to his word. But so what did our husband do for us? What did he have to do as our husband? He had to suffer, and then he had to die. He had to lay down his life for us. And husbands, that is why we need a lot of grace, because who among us have loved our wives like Christ has loved his bride? Yet, that is the command, and it's not softened, nor is it changed because of the sinful impact of either... Uh, female feminism or male chauvinism, both of which are contrary and devilish compared to what we see what God's written here in chapter 5. And so now we come to the time of examining our text this evening. And there's a lot more here. Obviously, it's a larger uh, passage than I normally would take, but it's all speaking of the one subject, so we're going to try to get through it this evening. And as we see here, having read the text, that the husband is given basically two models to follow, or you might say two illustrations to help him see and help him to understand just what do you mean here, Lord? How am I to love my wife? Of course I love my wife. I wouldn't have asked her to marry me if I didn't love my wife. Well, the scripture is very clear here and it gives us two witnesses. We have the model of Christ himself and how he treated his bride, the church. And then secondly, we have the model of how man naturally cares for his own body. You might say, as I said, we have two witnesses here so that we're without excuse, husbands. And just so you know up front, I I haven't said a lot to to Eva about this, but this is one of those sermons where it's it's a lot easier to preach than to live. And of course, they're all that way, uh, but especially this one. But I have a lot of, uh, need a lot of grace as well as you husbands, as we'll see later as we see what we're called to do here. So let's look at the first model. Verse 25 again, husbands. Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So I want to say up front that the first and primary thing that the husband is to do, his duty is that he is to love his wife. And again, brethren, we're not left to wonder what kind of love it is. It is the same kind of love that Christ manifested toward his bride, the church. Which means, brethren, it it was these two things at the very least— 
It was active and it was costly. It was active and it was costly. I say Christ's love was active because everything that he came to this earth to do was for her, wasn't it? I mean, we could say certainly that he came to do the Father's will, he came for the Father's glory, but is it wrong of me to say, brethren, that everything for which he came to do was to labor for his church? He labored, he took on flesh, he, he lived amongst sinners, he who was holy and pure and undefiled had to live around all of that. He labored to obey God's law perfectly. And why did he do that? So he could present his bride a robe, a robe of righteousness. Enduring temptations in the wilderness, wasn't it for her that he did that? Walking around Palestine three and a half years, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, being ridiculed by the religious leaders. It was for her. Think of the long nights and prayer, the weariness of going from city to city, confronting demons and sinners. It was for her. It was for his bride that he did those things. Our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, was always actively engaged in pursuing that which manifested love to his bride. She never left his mind. She never left his heart. She never left his purpose. Application, men. Have we stopped to consider that to love our wives like Christ loved the church means that most everything we do in life is for her, not for ourselves? I never really thought about it this much until I looked at the text this week more. Don't answer out loud, brethren, but, and certainly correct me afterwards if you think differently, but did our Lord or did he not see his church as his main purpose in life? Wasn't it his love for her that motivated him to do all that he did? At the very least, brothers, there were very few things that Christ did on this earth that did not involve his bride. Which means what? Which means if we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church, our wives aren't just some part of what we do in life. They're not just some attachment to my career. They're not just some help, quote, meet in the family to take care of my children. And it's all about me, the head of the family. And so, brethren, isn't it interesting that we would be called to see our own jobs and occupation as a means to provide for her and to care for her and to love her, not some occupation to make me feel happy and fulfilled in life. Indeed, how many of us as husbands ever consider our wives as the reasons for the, what we do mostly in life? Yet that's exactly what Christ did with his. He lived his life for the good and purpose of his bride. But notice, brethren, this love was not simply motivated by an active life with his bride as his purpose for living. It was also motivated by the very high cost of having died for her. Verse 26, 25 again, I mean. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, the model placed before us as husbands here 
that we're commanded to follow is that to love our wives, it's going to have to cost us dearly. The Lord Jesus prayed, paid the price of laying down his own life for his bride. How much does it cost you to love yours? Again, it would be easy to feel like a complete failure when we think of how selfish and how self-centered we of husbands can be compared to how Christ loved his bride. But Paul's purpose in showing Christ as our model to follow is to be a mirror for his brothers. And a mirror shows all the defects that we might know what needs to be worked on, what needs to be fixed. And so again, brothers, I ask you, how much does it cost you to love your wife? And I'm not just talking about spending money on her, though perhaps for some husbands that might be the most painful way for you to show your love. But our Lord's method was he held nothing back. He held nothing back. He lived for his bride. He died for his bride. And then the Bible teaches that after he ascended, before he ascended, he gave gifts to his bride. And all the while, his bride has been weak, at times unfaithful, and at times she has soiled her garments. But his love for her still reigns supreme in his heart, and he continues to live, ever live, to make intercession for her. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for. Now, in this first model, showing us how to love our wives as Christ loved the church, we see that love is primary and that love is always active and always costly. But in this model of Christ's love for his church, it has a twofold goal. The first you see in verse 26, the first goal is her sanctification. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Now, there have been various opinions among the commentaries that I read this week on what this washing of the water really means. Of course, a lot of our commentaries are written by good Presbyterians. And so there was no surprise that many of them wanted to think that this had something to do with baptism. Others say it was symbolic of a reference to the time of a bride's purification. Apparently, in ancient times, when a monarch was going to be married, the bride would go through a purification period. It certainly matches, doesn't it, what Christ is doing with his bride right now. He is sanctifying us, his bride, the church, through the ministry of his word, and then one day we shall be made completely purified in his presence. Paul put it this way to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians eleven two: I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as chaste, as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's what he's doing. He's working on you. He's working on me. We're going through that purification period. And then death will purify what's left as we are then in his presence. Now, whatever else is alluded to here in Ephesians 5 concerning the washing of the water, it's the word that's the cleansing agent, isn't it? And just as Christ is using it to sanctify his brides, husbands are to use it to sanctify theirs. And this is obviously... I think obviously means more than reading the Bible together, though that ought to be good to do if you're able to do it. I think the true meaning here is that the husband is to love his wife by making the word of God the guiding factor in his home and his life. In other words, the husband sacrifices or sanctifies, excuse me, his wife 
That is, he sets her apart from the world unto himself and ultimately unto Christ by being a doer of the word in his home and not a hearer only. He is a Joshua. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And how else do we do that but by serving him according to his word? And again, that is impossible to do, isn't it, brethren, apart from the grace of God. But biblical love for one's wife must be guided by strict adherence to the Scripture, as hopefully he is led by the Spirit of God in doing so. But now notice there's a second goal for the husband in loving his wife, like Christ loved the church in verse 27, continuing speaking of the sanctifying language, but it says that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that, he should, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Now, the goal, brethren, of her sanctification, I've already alluded to in the previous verse, but the added goal we see here in verse 27 is this idea of presenting her to himself. Christ is actively sanctifying us as his people, and his end goal is to present one day us to himself as his chaste Right, that's what Paul just said about the Corinthian church. Without spot and without blemish. And as husbands, we have part in bringing about that purity and holiness as we lead our wives according to the word. And brethren, there's no question it's going to be something we have to do that's constant and costly. There will be times when we, both as husbands and our wives as well, will find it very difficult to submit to what the Bible commands us to do in these passages. But if we as husbands really love our wives, we will hold strong to the Scripture no matter the cost. Especially when the cost is having to own our own sin, sometimes requiring us to humble ourselves and ask for forgiveness. Sometimes it may even mean pointing out sin in your wife. Neither of which is very easy and both very humbling to have to do. But love does it. True love for our wives is living by the word and seeing it have that sanctifying effect on your life and also on hers. So that one day, both husband and wife will be presented to Christ as his perfect and chaste bride. All brought about by the grace he supplies to each one in order to do their part so that he still gets the glory for all of it. Well, husbands, and just in case... We don't quite understand how to love our wives like Christ loved the church. The Apostle Paul supplies a yet another model in this illustration. Verse 28 and verse 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For years, I've never really truly think I've really got a good grasp on that, maybe a little more this time around. But I do think the illustration, the model is quite clear because God created marriage in such a way as to make the two in one union. The husband, therefore, would be hurting and defiling his own self to to not love his wife. I think that's the picture. It's clear enough. Don't listen to the world, brethren. Marriage is not a partnership. It's a union. The two shall be made one. Says it later in this text, but our Lord said it in Matthew 19, 5, again quoting from Genesis, the creation ordinance. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two, that's four, the two shall become one flesh. So then they're no longer two, but one flesh. 
And so if my wife is a part of me, if our being married created one union, then that union is affected by what one does to the other. And since the husband is the head, it's particularly fallen upon him. And so if we as husbands are not loving our wives the way Christ loves his church, then it's not just our wives that suffer. That's the point. You are hindering your own sanctification, your own joy, to not love your wife like Christ loves the church. That's the point. So the illustration is a man, of course, unless he's mentally ill, usually cares for his own body, doesn't he? He makes sure that he feeds himself when he's hungry or he drinks something when he's thirsty. He puts a bandage on his arm when he gets cut or when he breaks a bone. He makes sure that his body has what it needs to be well. And so the meaning is, brethren, from a spiritual perspective, take care of your wife by loving her like Christ loves the church because your lack of love will weaken the one union, the one body, which is the union between you and her, one flesh. Now, notice how Paul brings it right back to Christ and his church, again, in verse 30 and 31. But we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two. Again, here it is again. The two shall be one flesh. Christ is sanctifying his church because that is the only way our union with him can be whole. We know this, don't we? He's holy, he's perfect, he's righteous. And so he's sanctifying his bride, he's making us holy, us righteous, so that on the day of our consummation with him, we will truly experience a glorious oneness with him. That's what he's preparing us for. Now, the spiritual union with Christ, our spiritual union with him can only be known and experienced by faith. But one day it will be felt and it will be known by sight. For all eternity. Now, brethren, I saw this this week. It's probably nothing new under the sun. I know that. But I want you to turn to John 17, because I think it's all right there for us in that prayer of our Lord. John 17. Hold your place in Ephesians 5. You know, this is our Lord's high priestly prayer. Praying for the disciples, also praying for the church, for his bride. We'll start in verse 17. I want you to see all these factors, how they are in his prayer. John 17, 17, what does he say? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What did we just read about the husband's duty? See, this is what our Lord is doing. Same thing for his church. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that I also may be sanctified that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Husband, sanctify yourself that your, husband, that your wives might be sanctified. What it mean to be set apart? And you do to do it by the word, right? Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they also, here it is, brethren, that they also may be what? One, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. There is no union, there is no oneness without the sanctifying. Verse 22, the glory which you gave me, I've given them that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, 
that the world may know that you have sent me and notice it and have loved them as you have loved me. Brethren, it's all right there in that prayer. The sanctifying word, the sanctifying husband, the love of the husband, and the end result is what? A oneness with Christ and glory forever and ever. Christ is caring for his body, the church, because he has united himself to her, and we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. And I don't know all that that's going to mean when we get to the new heavens and the new earth. I really don't. In fact, Paul says in the next verse, it's a mystery, isn't it? Verse 32, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's as if Paul is allowing us to sort of peek for just a little while to see what that marriage is going to look like when the church and her consummation is made fully whole, perfect, no more sin, glorified bodies with the glorified Christ. What a marriage made in heaven. What a marriage made in heaven. And he shows us just enough so that we husbands can see just what we're supposed to be doing so that we can be being aiding that process along to that very end. But then he takes us back out of the, the, that mystery, which we can't fully grasp right now, brings us back to heaven, as, down to earth, as it were, in verse 33. Nevertheless, <laughs> let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It is, again, as if Paul was saying, the model of Christ's love for his church is too profound too glorious for you to understand fully right now, but you have seen enough to understand what kind of love you ought to be showing your wives. With all of this sacrificial love of the husband, if received by his wife, it will be a taste of heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like. His prayer, our Lord's prayer was at the end what? That they may be one even as we are one. And he starts off by saying, sanctify them, Father, with thy truth. Thy word is truth. Do you see how that's connected? There cannot be this, this love marriage, as it were, the fullness of this love without that sanctifying work. Because what? Because love is the fulfillment of the law and sin is a transgression of it. The duty of the husband This is loving her with the word of truth, being guided by the scripture, is to keep sin out of the camp so that that marriage can prosper and flower and bloom so that true love can really take place. And it will be sacrificial. It will be active. It will be costly. But it will be taking two, turning it into one. There will be love abounding in heaven forever and ever when we marry and have that consummation with our own Lord. And brethren, here is why our marriages indeed can be a taste of heaven. Because there is no one who sees and knows each other's sins more than the husbands and the wives. <laughs> Man, there's stuff that even knows about me. She doesn't even tell me. <laughs> but I know she knows and the Lord knows she knows. But what does love do? It covers a multitude of sin. 
That's what love does, and she covers it. She does a really good job of it. I hope I do as well, but I know she does mine. And so as we love our wives and as our wives submit to their husbands, then more and more of our sin is being dealt with. Love is fulfillment, right? Then there's a transgression. So what makes heaven heaven? It's not only that our husband will be there, but our sin will not be. And so when as husbands, as we love our wives, as Christ loved the church, both of us are being sanctified. Because you don't really want to submit in your flesh. And we don't really want to sacrifice ourselves to where we have to cost us anything. But when both do it, following the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church, it's a match made in heaven. What we're really learning is, is that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Indeed, we're learning just a little bit about what it means to be one with Christ and what that consummation is going to be like. Well, obviously, brethren, there's much more in our text, but let me stop and offer some concluding applications before we conclude stop tonight. As I said at the beginning, it will take a lot of grace for us as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Therefore, we are going to have to go to him for that grace. We're told in Hebrews 4.16, it's been coming up a lot lately in our various sermons and teachings, but we're commanded to come boldly to the throne of grace. We may find mercy and help. Grace in a time of need. There is no way not one single husband in this church can love his wife like Christ loved the church apart from prayer. Because that's where you get the grace. Now it is nice to have a wife that she submits and she loves you so much and so it makes it a little easier on some of us who have wives like that. I think most of our churches are filled with wives like that. I don't know about y'all's wives. I can just only speak for my own. But we still need grace. But I wonder, indeed, how often, brethren, fights and turmoils between husband and wives have been a result of prayerlessness by the husband. Christ, our husband, prayed for us. John 17. Christ, our husband, is still praying for us. He ever lives to make intercession for his bride. Now, we pray. We're going to need to pray for many things, but when you pray, don't forget to pray for your wife. There are a few things, brethren, that will soften our hearts and make us willing to sacrificially love them more than anything else than prayer rule. Pray for them. Pray for your wife. Well, my next application is more of an exhortation. Of course, they're all applications that usually end up being exhortations, but I, I can't think of a better place to learn what Christ's love for his church is what, what does that love look like than 1 Corinthians 13? I remember years and years ago now, I say, I, now that I've you know, been around as a Christian, been a pastor almost 26 this June, and I can say these years and years now. <laughs> I don't like saying it, but it's true. But it was a long time ago that I heard John MacArthur do a, ser- a series on 1 Corinthians 13. I think he actually did a book with it as well. He took every one of those love does not envy, and he preached a whole sermon on it. And it's with several of them in there. I'm going to read it to you in just a few minutes. But I was floored. I mean, I really had no idea what love really was. And this is Christ. This is the way he loves us. And so, husbands, I would exhort you, if you really want to know how to love your wife like Christ loved the church, meditate long on 1 Corinthians 13. Go listen to MacArthur's series. It's free now. I think I paid like $25 years ago. 
Read books on it. Listen to sermons on it. But own 1 Corinthians 13 like you've known no other text in the Bible. Because that is love. It's inspired. God wrote that for you, husband. For you wives as well. So here what he says. Love suffers long and is kind. Are you kind to your wife? Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Ouch. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. There's that sanctifying work. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never fails. Brethren, just reading it is pretty powerful, but when you hear it expounded with illustrations, biblical ones and then life ones, quite amazing what he's being, what's being said here. Well, brethren, my final application brings us full circle. Because we started with the great motive for salvation, of salvation, to make us ready and willing to obey this command and all other commands. There is nothing that will motivate husbands more than the gospel. If you're not motivated by the gospel, you have the wrong motivation to get you through, to to overcome the, the, the obstacles to really love her like Christ loves the church. And so when our wives don't submit, or they do something to discourage us, we forgive even as we've been forgiven. When we sin against them, but being so impatient. When we place too high expectation on them. When we just plain fail to love them as we should. It is the gospel that forces us to ask for forgiveness. The goal is sanctification, holiness. But the gospel of grace is always there when both sides fail in the process. You're never without help with that gospel. It's a wonderful feeling, brethren, to be loved by someone who knows how truly imperfect you really are, and yet they love you anyway. And that's exactly how Christ loves his bride. God demonstrates his own love toward us even in this, even while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Dear ones who are here tonight without a spiritual husband, I'd like to introduce you to him. I'd like to set you up. <laughs> As it were, he's one who will never cheat on you. He'll never disappoint you. He will love you perfectly. He will wash away all your sins. He will keep washing you. He will bring that that purification to your life and prepare you to meet him in glory when you die. Because you will die. And if you're not purified by the blood of Christ... You'll never have a husband in eternity. Nothing but wrath, suffering, hell. It's awful. It's so awful. And so you are always encouraged and commanded and taught very, very frequently from this pulpit. Trust Christ while you can. Trust Christ. He, he doesn't just simply get down on one knee Brethren, he humbled himself even to the point of the cross for sinners. 
Come to him. He invites you to come, to give your life to him, and he will give his for you. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the powerful, powerful text that this passage is for us as husbands. How little I have exposed from it this night, but we pray, God, that by your spirit you have given each every, every one of us as husbands a little more, a little more understanding. Lord, we pray for a whole lot more grace that we might put it into practice. Thank you for our wives, Lord. Thank you for your church. We praise you. We thank you for the grace that you give us to love them and to serve them. We pray, God, that this week we will be reminded of what we ought to be doing, that we ought to be thinking about them, praying for them, that they're not just a side thought in our daily activities, but, God, that they are a part of what we're doing because we are one as we have been made a covenant before you in one flesh. Help us, Lord, to love them as you have loved us. In Jesus' name. Amen.